Father, thank you for your mercies every day. For the mercies you offer to your faithful in encouragement and in blessings of one kind or another, I thank you for the work you're doing in Houston that we witnessed firsthand through the report that we received today. And I thank you, Father, for the work you will do, I know, in the place that might see disaster tomorrow, wherever that is. I thank you, Father, for the work you're doing in our own lives. For in our own life, Father, we have disasters, we have challenges, we have trials. As we heard in the Scripture this morning, when these things come upon us, we're not to look upon them as if something unusual, something strange has fallen on us. Rather, Father, we should understand this is the way of life. We live in a fallen world. We live among those who do not know you and who count you as their enemy who, by the influence of Satan, are working against your purposes and therefore against ours as well. So why should it be strange, Father, when sin gets in our way, when the world opposes us, when our own desires are conflicted with yours? It should not surprise us, Father, but we thank you, Father, that you have more than enough power and all the mercy and grace required to help us pass those moments, to get us through them, to help us understand them, to help us benefit from them. And we thank you, Father, for the work you did to bring Israel through the experiences that we're hearing about in the book of Ezekiel. And while it seems odd to thank you, Father, for such hard times, it reminds us, Father, that before great good things can come, difficult times must begin. And so, Father, for the reasons you had for Israel, for the great things you had planned for your people, You took them through some very difficult times. So, Father, I pray as we learn about these difficulties, we don't forget the good you had planned. Not for them, not for us. So remind us of those things again this morning. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Chapter 9. You remember last week that we started a new section here? We're studying the section on how the Shekinah glory of God departs the temple that he's occupied in Jerusalem. He set up residence there with Solomon's inaugurating of the temple, and he stayed there for more than 300 years in the Holy of Holies. But as we learned last week, the time has come for the Lord to withdraw his spirit from the temple. And in chapter 8, we saw the offenses that are caused for this departure. We learned that there were five abominations which give cause for the Lord to withdraw His glory from the house. All five of these involve the very worst kinds of adultery and ungodliness, any one of which was reason enough by itself for Him to leave. And so when you look at all five together, you certainly understand why the Lord feels He needs to do what He needs to do. He says in His word elsewhere, He cannot reside alongside idols. And that's what Israel has done now, brought idols into the home of God, into His house, And the Lord is now going to act. Now that was part one of a four-part story. Each part is basically a chapter. So chapter 8 was part one. Chapter 9 today is part two. And today in chapter 9 we see the next stage of this story. That is, we see the movement of the Shekinah glory of God beginning. As he begins to walk his way, so to speak, out of the temple. But what we're going to find today, and what is very interesting, actually it's a key within this story, is we're going to see the Shekinah glory of God departing in stages, in measured steps. He moves, he pauses, he resides in a new place for a while, then he moves again. The first of these stages is described today in chapter 9, that's what we'll study today. The subsequent stages are described in chapters 10 and 11. But today's chapter has something else far more prominent in it, something that will catch your attention to a greater degree. It has a strong and some would say even disturbing battle scene 
in the chapter today. And it's the major feature of the chapter. But I want to begin as we study today by telling you this is not an actual battle. It's a picture, rather, of what the Lord says He will do. And it explains to some degree why. Let's begin with the first couple of verses. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then He cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. Among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Notice at the beginning here, just the simple word, then. The chapter begins with that word, which indicates to us that this is the next thing Ezekiel is seeing in the same series of events that began in the prior chapter. So what we're learning is this is a continuation of what we just saw in chapter 8, a continuation of this vision. You remember last week we said that Ezekiel was transported, he says, in a vision of God to Jerusalem. So he did not actually go anywhere. He is residing still in Babylon throughout this whole section. What he's experiencing is a vision. So in a way you can say he's watching a supernatural movie or a dream, if you will. That tells us that the events that he's witnessing now, like the ones prior, these events are not happening in real time. And that's an important way to understand the chapter. He is not watching real life happen in real time. And look back, for example, in chapter 8. In that chapter we saw those five abominations that took place in the temple. Those were events from the past. Those were things that were historically what has happened in that place. Maybe some of them were ongoing even in the present. But the point is, he was not watching that happen in real time. Likewise, then, the scene you're seeing depicted here in chapter 9 is something revealing future events that have not yet even happened. But even more than that, the scene is of symbolic picturing of those events. This is not the way it will happen when it happens. It will actually happen in a very simple way. But the Lord is using symbolic things to describe an outcome that is yet to come so that Ezekiel and the readers, you and I, will understand why. Got it? All right. Let's go into the scene. The scene begins with this loud voice crying. And the voice says, Executioners are to draw near to the city and into the temple. And in response to the call, Ezekiel witnesses six men, he says, they come into the temple through the upper gate... One of the upper gates that faces north. Remember last week we said that at one of the gates coming into the temple compound in the, in the wall around the temple, from the north there was a gate that when people walked in with their sacrifices, they had to pass by that Asherah idol that Manasseh had set up years earlier, 60 years earlier. Well, there was more than one gate in that wall. The walls were long enough that there were multiple gates. And besides the one we studied last week, there's another one. And that second one here is the one we're looking at in this chapter. And that second one, we know it's different because it's said to be in the northeast corner of the temple at the highest point of the temple mount. Today, that would be the Damascus Gate. Any of you who might go to Israel with me next year or in future years will stand in the very same place this is talking about, although we'll be standing about 25 feet above where this one actually took place because in the years since, things have been built on top. But in the same general place. Anyway, six guys walk in through that gate. They're walking into the temple compound. Each of them has a weapon. Verse 1, it's called a destroying weapon. Or in Hebrew, the word for destroying is machete. We have a word called machete. But in verse 2, it's called a shattering weapon. Now the Hebrew word is changed to mafatz, which means hammer. 
So what is it? Is it a hammer? Is it a big knife? That is our first clue that what you're seeing Ezekiel relate to us here is not exactly what it seems to be. That these men are not men. They're angels. And there's something supernatural about them such that when Ezekiel tries to describe it to us, he, he can't even really identify what they're holding. It looks like something that you would take into battle, but then again, it looks like something you would hammer with. It's not exactly what we normally carry into battle. And more than that, you hear them obeying the call of the Lord because that's the voice you heard to open the whole chapter. We're going to see even greater evidence of their angelic powers later. But for now, understand, these are not mere men. This vision is of God directing supernatural beings, angels. And chief among them is another man. We hear of this other man, a seventh. There's seven altogether when you count this other guy. And he's wearing white linen and carrying a writing case strapped to his side. He has no weapon, and he's dressed in this somewhat peculiar way. Let's talk about the writing case first. You can sometimes see it called an inkhorn. And that's because of what it was made from, usually from a bone or a horn. It's a small box, maybe a, about seven inches long, inch and a half high, uh, inch thick. Uh, just a very narrow, long box made out of horn, or sometimes it's made out of bone or even precious metal sometimes. And it would have holes in the top of it for quills to sit in. And at one end, it was a little wider, and that's where the inkwell would be. And it was often strapped to the side of a person. In, strapped to the loins is a Bible way of saying, sort of in the waistband that held the tunic together. You have this writing case. And it was carried by men of high position who had to frequently sign documents, or scribes, people whose job it was to do writing. That's the first interesting detail. Secondly, the guy's dressed in white linen. Now, linen, white linen specifically, is the clothing of a priest, specifically under the law, or anyone who would serve in a priestly function. And his dress is very similar to that worn by another enigmatic character in Scripture, a guy that you see described elsewhere in Daniel's chapter 10 and 12, And in that chapter, you see a guy dressed in white linen who appears hovering over a river. Well, if you were to go back and study what Daniel says about it, and we do this online if you want to go listen, you come to learn that that guy in Daniel 10 and 12, dressed in white linen, is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The Lord appearing before he came in the form of man by Mary. And so given the nature of what he does here and his dress... It would seem logical and appropriate to conclude that here again, this seventh man is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, leading the other six angels. And that's especially consistent with what you see about him. For example, he's dressed as a priest, and we know the Bible says Jesus is our high priest, our intercessor, our mediator before God. But what of the writing box? Well, we need to read a little further if we're going to put that detail together with the rest of the story. So let's go back into the text, verse 3. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherubim on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all of the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. And do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, young children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, 
defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out. And thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. We'll start with what starts this section, that is the movement of the glory of God. You have the first time the glory of God now departs, moves from what was its home since the inception of the Temple of Solomon. In the Holy of Holies, and I'm, I, I know we've talked on this at times past, many of you may know this already, but the structure of the temple will help you understand what's going on. I want to give you a picture in your mind you can follow easily. The temple is a relatively narrow, rectangular building. In the original form that it took as a tabernacle, it was a small little place. Very small, surprisingly small. Not much bigger than our room next door here where we teach on Sunday school. And I'm talking like just the half apart from the donuts. Take that side of the building, cover it with a tent, you have the tabernacle. Very small. Solomon's temple being a bigger building, more ornate, you know, obviously they created a large structure around it. But the essential part of it inside was still the same dimensions as God required in the Word. So it's a very tight little space. It's divided into two parts. Basically, a third of it is a small room, and then two-thirds of it is a longer room. The two-thirds that are the longer room we call the holy place. And in it, there were a number of items God required, pieces of furniture, key items, all of them picturing Christ. And it's lit by a menorah, a big lamp that lights the room. But in that smaller third called the Holy of Holies, separated by a veil, you have the Ark of the Covenant and nothing else. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, of course, the easiest way for me to describe this is if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Hopefully your reference for this is a little bit more substantial than that, but if not, at least that'll work. If you take that box, the Ark of the Covenant, and you imagine it as it's often depicted, we don't exactly have a picture of it, but we have a pretty good idea from Scripture. At the top of it, a lid that sat on top of it had two carved angels, or cherubim technically. You remember this from earlier in our study. The highest order angel. And they're positioned on the top of this, facing each other with their wings up above each other, creating a canopy over the center of the lid. So there's nothing in the center of the lid except the space created by their wings. Inside that Holy of Holies, with the ark and these little cherubim, the glory of God would appear and stay there. And it occupied the space underneath the cherub's wings. In that room, there was no lamp. There was no other furniture. There's no windows on the tabernacle. No windows. So in that one space behind the veil, it's pitch black dark, apart from the glory of God. So God designed the the Holy of Holies so that its light source was God himself which is a small taste of what we will see in the new heavens and new earth when there's no sun, there's no moon, and all the light that we have is from God himself in his temple. He gives us a taste of that, if you will, in that little space. And so when the high priest entered in once a year, which was the only action that happened inside that little room, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Holy of Holies was occupied for a moment by the high priest. He went in there and found light from the light of God. But now that light's departing, leaving the Holy of Holies. And it moves, it says, from there, from the cherubim, to, it says, the threshold of the temple in verse 3. And the threshold is the doorstep leading into the holy place. So he's moved from within the holy of holies, past the veil, through the length of the holy place, and now to the outside of that building on the threshold. So the glory of God, we presume, was visible at this point in time from outside the temple itself seated, if you were, just hovering. I'm not sure. We don't know. But at the exit. This is the last time in the history of Israel thus far that the glory of God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. 
So the first temple had the glory of God in, in the Holy of Holies, but now it's leaving. This one will be laid waste by Babylon. After that, it's been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, finished eventually with a wall by Nehemiah. That second temple goes all the way until it's destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. Does the glory of God ever walk into that temple? Absolutely it does. It just doesn't come in this way. We'll talk more about that later. But at this moment, the glory of God leaves the Holy of Holies. As I mentioned, it's departing, but not entirely. It goes in stages. So that's begging a huge question here we need to start to look at. Why does God move outward in this manner, slowly, moving from place to place? I mean, why didn't he just go poof, and he's gone? You know, rocket up into heaven. The answer is because the movement of the glory of God throughout these chapters is a shadow of Christ. And we're going to take a closer look at the connection between how it moves and where it resides and what Christ does in his New Testament ministry. For now, though, let's keep moving in this story. As the glory rests on the threshold, you have a voice then calling out to this man in linen, commanding him to go out through the city of Jerusalem and begin marking people on their foreheads. And we now have a better understanding of why he has an inkhorn to mark the men. And it says, mark those who are sighing and groaning over the abominations that are being committed by Israel in the midst of the city. And obviously, if you're sighing and you're groaning over the Asherah idol, or the women who are weeping to Tammuz because they're prostitutes in the temple, or to the men who are worshiping bugs and creatures inside the temple, I mean, if that's bothering you, then that disapproving response would be our indication that your heart is not with them in those things. Moreover, you have a heart that is God-fearing, that desires what Yahweh desires, which would mean these are the remnant of Israel. This is a good example of what we mean when we say that someone's life in behavioral terms can be a reflection of their heart. Not a proof, per se. I can't always be sure it means what I think it means. But there is a connection there. As your heart is moved, your life should reflect it. And here you see that connection. So as the remnant lives amongst all of this stuff going on, they're not happy with it, and they understand there's a problem. God now moves to protect them with a marking against what is coming against the city, against this judgment. The Lord is providing protection for His people. Now, I want to be very clear with my terms at this point. When I say His people, I mean the remnant, believers, as we might say today. Israel generally is God's people, but now he's being more discriminating. He wants to know who within this community of people are mine of faith. As Paul would say in Romans, not all who are born of Israel is Israel. Not all who are in this city are his of faith now. So he is marking those of faith. This moment is a good example of an important biblical principle that applies to both the men and women of Israel in this day and to us today. Whenever the Lord acts by his wrath against ungodliness, he will protect his children of faith from his judgments. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter 2.4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and he rescued Lot, opposed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Well then, 
The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So what Peter says is, let me use some examples from the Old Testament to teach you an important principle. I'm going to contrast God's judgment, how he deals with the ungodly versus how he deals with the godly. And he says, for example, those ungodly angels who sinned in the days of Noah that then brought about the need for the flood, what did God do to them? He cast them into hell. And to those ungodly on the earth who were sinning at that time, what did he do to them? He put them in the waters. But what did he do to the one family on earth who was of faith in that day? He put them on a boat. The Lord condemned the perverse and ungodly cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example. But he rescued Lot, who lived among them. So what's the principle? The principle is, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly while holding the ungodly accountable, even when they're mixed up together. Even when they're in the same situation together. But there's a difference you should also notice from those examples. There's a difference between Noah and Lot. It's not a coincidence he chose these two, because they show both ends of the spectrum. In Noah's case, the Lord provided rescue for a man who is clearly godly, more importantly, clearly desiring of an escape. I mean, nobody spends better part of 100 years building a boat in a landlocked area than someone who actually believes in a flood and wants to survive it, right? But what about Lot? In Lot's case, the Lord also provided rescue, but he had to do it for a man who was tempted to remain in the city and wasn't even heeding the call to leave. You know the story, right? From years ago, we studied it. But Lot was in the city, shouldn't have been, that was a mistake, but he was still a righteous man by faith. And when the time came for God to destroy those cities, he sent angels in to claim those who were righteous. And when he went to Lot and his family, they basically they ran out of time. The angel said, we're going to just grab you and drag you out of here. Peter concludes that the Lord is so determined and so powerful to protect his own people from his coming judgment that he will even rescue us from temptation. He doesn't just depend on us accepting the offer. He will take whatever means necessary. And Peter is not promising that the Lord removes all our temptations. Amen to the fact that we all still have temptations, right? That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that when your temptations leave you vulnerable to God's wrath, he will intervene for his own namesake. Because the Lord will never want to be seen as judging wrongly, as being unjust. Just as Abraham reminded God before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham said this to God in Genesis 18.25. He says, Far be it from you, O Lord, to do such a thing, that is, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And that's truth. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we who are in Christ Jesus by faith have no condemnation. So here's the dilemma for the Lord. There are moments in history when the Lord will act to bring a moment of judgment, of temporal judgment, to say nothing of eternal judgment. But He'll bring an earthly judgment to make a point, to correct some wrong, to ensure that the world doesn't go to hell in a handbasket too quickly. And as he does those things, he has to be discriminating. He cannot let his wrath for sin rest on us because he's already put that on Christ. And that's why there's no condemnation for you and I. We have, you could say, you and I have been marked spiritually on our foreheads, sealed by the Holy Spirit for a day of redemption. And yes, you and I still have sin, but the point is you're not condemned for it. You are not condemned for something Christ has already paid for. And I know the enemy will stand as an accuser against all of us 
from time to time, or he'll try. And I know others will come alongside us from time to time and condemn us, and maybe rightly so. Maybe we make mistakes that deserve somebody to point them out to us so that we would do better the next time, like the policeman writing us that ticket on the side of the road. Right? Sometimes when others condemn us, it has just cause and good value. But that's not saying we're spiritually condemned. And I know we condemn ourselves. Some of us are hard on ourselves. But despite all that, the Bible stands here to tell you, friends, the Lord does not condemn you now. He doesn't condemn you now. He's not going to condemn you later. You cannot sin your way out of a salvation you received by faith alone. You didn't get it by your good works. You're not going to lose it by your bad works. You and I may not have the visible marks on our body that are implied by this inkhorn exercise, but you can take to the bank the fact that the Lord knows who His sheep are, He sees you spiritually as marked by the Holy Spirit, and therefore he will protect you from his wrath. Now that's a distinct category here. Hurricane Irma is not God's wrath. I don't care what you read in the the papers. I read some stupid stuff about that in the last couple of days. God is not singling out parts of the world with hurricanes because of his wrath over homosexual marriage or some crazy theory. The wrath for all of that is yet to come, and it will come in its appropriate day. What we're talking about is when God makes a movement like you see happening here in Ezekiel, to exhibit his wrath against sin, as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, as he may do in the future on earth. He knows who his people are, and he moves them out of the way. Do you remember what he did in Goshen, when Egypt held Israel captive as their slaves, and God brought Moses in to bring judgment against Israel? All of Israel was sitting in Goshen at that point, an upper northwest corner of Egypt. And he brought plague after plague after plague, and the Bible says none of those plagues hit Goshen. He knew who his people were. Scripture says... One day, the Lord will deal with sin. You and I are living, you could say, in the days of Ezekiel. And by that I mean times of great sin in a world that is growing more and more ungodly, as Paul said it would, a world of ungodliness that is literally thumbing its nose at God, daring Him to do something about it. And you and I who have the Spirit in us, the law of God written on our hearts, you and I are sighing and groaning, about what we're seeing, right? Who amongst us isn't looking at the world saying, how much worse can it be? Cannot they see what they're doing? What we should also be doing, though, is fearing just a little bit. By this I mean fearing that sooner or later the Lord is going to act, not against us, but against them. Scripture says one day He will. But before He brings judgment on the ungodly, as we know He will, the Bible says the Lord will provide protection for the godly. For you and I, those he knows. And he does it for us in a particularly spectacular way. How does he plan to move you and I out of the way before he brings the judgment that needs to come? The Bible says he will come, the Lord will come from heaven, claim his bride and remove her from the earth. We call it commonly the rapture. There's a judgment coming that Jesus said is like a thief in the night to fall upon those who are remaining behind and unaware that something is going to happen. But before that happens, there is a great escape plan for you and I so that you and I will be spared from that wrath. Later in the tribulation period that follows on earth, the seven-year tribulation, he does it again for Israel. To the believing remnant of Israel who are caught up in the events of tribulation, they weren't believing at the time of the rapture, but they come to faith during the tribulation. Then the time comes for the enemy to go after them. The Lord's going to escort the believing remnant of Israel into the desert, the Bible says, into a place called Petra. And he's going to provide protection and provision for that group for three and a half years so that they cannot be harmed by the judgments or even by the Antichrist. 
Here again, another example of the power of God to protect his people. So here you have in Jerusalem the Lord commanding a man in linen, Jesus, to inscribe the remnant, the few believers that are still in the city, those who sigh and groan, and give them a mark of protection. The fact that the man in linen is the one who goes out doing the marking is further confirmation for us that this is Christ. Because the Bible says that the Lord is the one who marks us for eternal life and preserves us from condemnation. He says this to the churches in Asia Minor, one of the churches in Revelation, when he writes letters to the seven churches. He says this to one, Revelation 3, 4. He says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, that is to say they're sighing and groaning over sin, and they will walk with me in white like I walk in linen, for they are worthy... He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And then notice he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus, you could say, is the great scribe who writes names in the book of life. In fact, elsewhere in Revelation, that book of life is also called the book of the life of the Lamb. It's Christ's book. He scribes what's in that book. And those he records in that book can never be erased. So, having marked those who are his, now the time comes for judgment. And in verses 5 and 6, you saw, as I read, the Lord says, show no pity. They are told, the six angels that have the weapons are told to go out, strike down every single last person who is not of God. No mercy. It doesn't matter their gender. It doesn't matter their age. They can be an old man. They can be a young man. They can be an old woman. They can be an unmarried virgin. They can even be a little child. Anyone who does not have the mark is killed. And it begins, he says, with the leaders in the sanctuary, the priests, those who are the worst of the worst, leading the city into abominations, and then it goes outward from there. Now, historically, we know that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed not by six angels carrying hammers. This is not a Marvel movie. It is destroyed by an ordinary group of Babylonian soldiers. Nebuchadnezzar comes down for the third of his three attacks. When he has to go in for the third time, he's so upset at that point. After the first two, he says, I'm done with these people. And he goes in with the intent to wipe them out. And he does. After a siege, he gets through the walls. He destroys the city. He destroys the temple. He destroys the walls, which is why we have Nehemiah later coming to rebuild them. He takes every last person that he didn't kill back with him as slaves and just he's done with it. That's how it happens. So what that tells us then is that this vision with warrior angels is a representation of what's coming in the form of the Babylonian army. In fact, notice that they come in to the temple from the northeast entrance of the temple. Well, if you look at a map of Jerusalem, where is Babylon in reference to Jerusalem on the map? Northeast. So even their point of entry is a picture of the direction in which this army will travel to get to Jerusalem. Furthermore, when you look at what the army actually did when it came in, they destroy the city in a way that matches the Lord's orders perfectly. They showed no mercy. They killed indiscriminately. They killed women. They killed old men. They killed children. The only difference between what we see in this vision and what actually happened in history is that they did not kill with hammer-wielding angels. They killed in a more conventional way. So that's how you have to understand what Ezekiel is seeing here. The Lord is explaining to the prophet through this picture that there is a destruction coming upon the city and it's a destruction that the Lord is not going to stop. In fact, it is a destruction ordained by the Lord. Who was the one giving the orders in the vision? The Lord. 
Elsewhere in Isaiah's book, you see Isaiah describing the army of the north of Babylon as God's instrument. In fact, in a a mocking way, there's a part of Isaiah where Isaiah describes the Lord whistling for the Babylonian army like you and I would whistle for a dog to call them down to destroy Israel. So there's clear consistency in in the Old Testament that what happened that day happened because God ordained it, called for it, intended it. And this vision through Ezekiel is part of how we know that. Now to the big question. How do we understand God's decision to take the lives of even the very young? Naturally, it would concern us to see women and children dying as a result of all of this, doesn't it? I mean, you have to assume the children are innocent of these abominations by virtue of their age. And I would also assume that many of the women, even some of the men, are not personally responsible for the abominations. They didn't decide to do what happened. So then you wonder, why are they caught up in the destruction? Well, first, the entire city is polluted by the sin of a few. That's a general principle in Scripture. And when a society embraces ungodliness, everyone in that society is at risk if God were to bring his judgment. And we know that because the Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons, which is to say he does not grade on the curve. All of the city will suffer the penalty, and the Lord has said so in his word, and he's doing it because a few led the city wrong. Remember in Jesus' day, it was not every single Jew in Israel that stood up at some moment and declared they would not follow Jesus as their Messiah. It was only a few who made that determination. The Pharisees, The religious leaders of Israel made the determination that he was not a legitimate Messiah, and the crowd simply followed after them. Many were probably completely unaware of the circumstances that were taking place, and yet the whole nation of Israel was placed under judgment for the failure to accept their Messiah. The Lord said this to Israel in Exodus 20. He said in Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of that which is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, You shall not worship them or serve them. And then he adds this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the Lord has been very clear with Israel from the beginning that when the society moves against him, the society will suffer. And he is not discriminating on the basis of culpability. The only thing that escaped this judgment was those who by faith were aligned with God spiritually. Furthermore, a person's age or their status in some particular situation does not change the fundamental question of whether they are deserving of God's wrath or not. This is a hard conversation. We like to think of innocence very much in terms of age or perspective, or relative culpability. Right? We, we grade on curves all the time. You may see young people, or those who played no part in this abomination, as innocents. And we like to throw the word innocent around a lot in this context. But the Bible says the reality is, every person is still guilty of his or her own sin and ungodliness, regardless of what connection they might have with larger events that are taking place around them. I mean, for example, in, in this city where we live, are, are we living in a city of ungodliness? Of course, as is every city in the world. I'm not saying we're unique. Are you personally responsible for all the ungodliness in this city? Of course not. What are you responsible for? Your own ungodliness. 
And apart from your faith in Christ, that is all by itself enough to warrant your condemnation. If you do not know Christ, your own sin is plenty reason for wrath. In fact, every day that you might live without wrath is grace. The fact that an unbeliever could live to age 100 is 100 years of grace. So it makes no difference whether a person is 1 or 5 or 50 or 100. If they are not of faith, then they're not righteous. And we know the Lord has already marked those in the city who were of faith, including, we might assume, some women. Some children were probably marked. And therefore, the rest are, by definition, unrighteous. You notice in verse 5, he says to the destroyers, he says, all the others, meaning all those who were not of faith, were to be destroyed. This is the way the Lord works. You know, if we diminish this truth, if we cover it up, if we fail to attend to it properly, if we just pretend it doesn't exist, what you have done without realizing it is, you have diminished God's mercy and grace as well. If you say the world has exceptions by virtue of age or any other criteria, then you're saying that the blood of Christ isn't essential. You're making what God did on the cross less than it is. You're making the problem easier to solve. You're making the solution less necessary. You've made the whole thing a gray area when the Bible has made it very clear there's a stark line. Remember the Lord ordered Joshua to destroy whole cities of Canaanites, including women and children, when Israel came in to take the land. Remember in the tenth judgment he brought in Egypt that the firstborn of every Egyptian household died, including, and probably many of them, were children. And in tribulation, a time yet to happen on earth, in the seal and trumpet and bowl judgments, uncountable millions of people are going to die, including children. And all of that death is the outcome of sin. And whether the Lord lets you live a long time or takes your life at an early age has not changed the fundamental question of who you are and on what basis God should allow you a day to live. Ezekiel has a similar concern to us in this regard. And you can see that evidenced in the next statement. A struggle, I think, on his part to understand what God is doing here. Verse 8. As they were striking the people and I was left alone, I fell on my face and cried out, saying... Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood. And the city is full of perversion. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me... My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case, reported, saying, I have done just as you commanded me. There's certainly nothing wrong with that human response of, Oh my goodness, what are you doing? The prophet had the same response. He said to the Lord, In effect, you're destroying them all. What are you doing? Why are you destroying the remnant? Now, the remnant, of course, is the Bible's word for the faithful, believing people of Israel. So what you see here is Ezekiel, having witnessed the marking already, he's so caught up in what he's watching, he forgets, it seems, that the marking had already been done to those who would be the remnant. He just jumps to the conclusion, you're killing them all. I think a part of our thinking is like that, right? We, we know he said he's saving the righteous, but you're killing the babies. 
But he already said he's saving the righteous. I mean, project this out a few more years. Let's see if it changes your perspective. If I, if I said, what if you waited 20 more years? Those babies are 20 years old. But they're not marked, so they're still the unrighteous. In other words, God, knowing the, the end from the beginning, has already determined, these are not mine. Does it make you feel better that they, they get 20 more years to grow up and commit 20 more years of sin before God finally acts as He should act against sin? You see, our, our feeling changes only because of 20 chronological years for the physical body? It's an insight, I hope, into the fact that we assign meaning to things that for God does not have eternal meaning. Age is just a characteristic of our bodies. It's not a characteristic of our soul. And that's the determination that God makes, is our soul. He looks past the physical. He looks at the things we can't see, and He understands things we don't understand. And even Ezekiel, with all that he's been told, is struggling to understand. And God says to him, they say, I don't exist. They say, I don't see, but my eye sees. You're forgetting all the bloodshed that has come from these people. You're forgetting all the perversion and the consequences of that perversion in the lives of children. The abuse of people who are under the care of such perversion. You're forgetting the negative side of all of these people and what they've done over all of the centuries. All you're thinking about in this instant is that one person in this instant, and that's not a perspective on which you can judge. And then, of course, the irony is, as Ezekiel thinks he's destroying all of God's remnant, who is Ezekiel? Remember, this is a picture of something yet to come. Ezekiel's sitting in Babylon. He is the remnant. The very fact that Ezekiel is able to see this in a vision while he sits in Babylon is proof that God didn't destroy him. It's proof that he's going to survive it, along with the others that God removed. There's already been two sieges on the city. So what the Lord is obviously doing is he's protecting those who've been marked by making them the ones who go back to Babylon in captivity. They don't get killed. Remember, a mark in this battle doesn't mean you get scot-free. It just means you don't die. So the Lord doesn't directly answer Ezekiel's question by saying, no, 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 I'm not killing them all. You forgot, I'm keeping a remnant. He just goes on to the point of what they did wrong. And in doing what they did wrong, they deserve what they're now seeing. And in God being just, He gives them what they deserve. He's not destroying a remnant. What He's destroying is the city, the walls, the sanctuary, the ungodly, and then preserves a captive remnant. If you're still struggling with the notion that there are no exceptions to God's judgment against ungodliness, then ask yourself this question. Why are you not worried about God making exceptions in who He extends mercy to? Because wouldn't it work both ways? I mean, if you want Him to make exceptions in the case of who's ungodly, for reasons of your own, whether that's age or something else, well, then that would mean you have a God who makes exceptions. And if you have a God who makes exceptions at all, well... Wouldn't that mean perhaps those of you and I who have put our trust in Christ and expected that that faith is sufficient to ensure our future with Him, what about an exception on that side of the equation? Maybe He'll make an exception for you. Maybe you'll sin so much He just decides, nah, I don't think I'm going to go through with this after all. I'm going to condemn that one after all. I know they believed, but you know we make exceptions. Isn't it funny how it only works one way? In our, in our hope, in our expectations, right? If God is not perfect in His justice, then He's not going to be perfect in His mercy either. If He's not true to His word when it comes to the ungodly, then why would He be true to His word when it comes to the godly? We have to believe in the God that exists, not the one of our preference. And the one the Bible shows is one who is infinite in His mercy, willing to put His own son to death. 
for the likes of us. But for that same reason, we need to be honest with the world that judgment's real, there is no escape, that apart from the provision they can get through their faith in Christ, apart from that, there is no second chance, there is no other road to heaven, there is no other hope. And though they may not see a bunch of warriors show up with shattering weapons in their city tomorrow, one day they die, one day the end comes. We're all sinners. We don't deserve what we have any better than anyone else. Our sins have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, but the Father has made it clear in His Word what is required for that mercy. And He's also made clear what comes without it. The city is suffering. He's preserving His remnant. There's more to the story. There's good news coming. But that good news is diminished if we don't understand what's happening here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you first this morning for your mercy and your grace in our lives through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, that you would bring us into your family through no work of our own and certainly not because we deserved it, but only because of your mercy, Father. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy, and we know that. And thank you, Father, as well, that you are God of justice. For if you were not perfect in that sphere, we could not expect you to be faithful to us in the mercy you've given us. But it is a hard truth, Father. It does hurt our hearts to consider that death awaits those who do not know you and the judgment that follows. I pray, Father, you'd use that concern in the right way in our hearts so that it would motivate us to be more fervent in our evangelism, more dedicated in our study to have answers to those hard questions we'll face, more selfless in our devotion of time to serve the world that needs to know you, and more humble, Father, as we consider what you've already given to us. We pray these things, Father, so that we may glorify you, so that we may be servants of the God who has called us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.